so we are already recording. And welcome to episode 138 of the NCP. My name is David, and we'll be the NCP crew. Richo. Welcome to CI. I mean, sorry. Welcome to NCP. Luke. Some of all sound like Skeksis from the Dark Crystal. Mm, mm, yes. <laughs> Greetings, mm. one and all. <laughs> and Crystal. Crystal. Hello. Uh, did I even come up? Did you doing that? <laughs> Your voice is low enough as it is. <laughs> Rosebud. <laughs> the horror. The horror. I won't have to bump that up, but who knows. For this episode, we have two dust jackets and our top five fictional magicians slash sorcerers slash warlocks slash whatever wizards. other magic users. Sorry? Wizards. Wizards, yeah. I didn't throw wizards in there. God damn it. I'm embarrassed. I quit. I'm no, done. Peter, you know I'm not actually a wizard. <laughs> However, I can play a wizard. <laughs> so without further ado, let's move on to dust jacket number one. Richard's Revenge. What? Richard's Revenge. Because it's so thick. What now? Uh, Richard and Crystal. <laughs> Stand on Zanzibar by John Brunner. Brunner? I pronounce it Brunner. Yeah, you pronounce too. it Brunner? Yeah. I said Blade Brunner. I'm sorry, did you say Blade Brunner? <laughs> yeah. Blade Brunner. Brunner. If he's middle day. They he's... say you Blade Brunner. <laughs> <laughs> that has got to be one of the worst jokes ever told on the show. On the show. <laughs> My God, that's a high list. Stand on Zanzibar uh, was first published in 1968. Um, it actually won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1969, as well as the 1969 BSFA Award. And strangely enough, it also won a 1973 Tour Apollo Award. BSFA, is that British Science Fiction Award? Yeah, British Science Fiction Association Award. Gotcha. And it is number 88. Two fat ladies. It is number 88 (laughs) on Sci-Fi List's top 200 science fiction books of all time, which, as you know, is where we draw all of these novels from. (laughs) Okay, Stand on Zanzibar is set um, in the 21st century. Um, Isn't that our century? Yes. It's actually set five years ago. Yes. Mm. Oh. Yeah. I was just going to do that. I was just going to say <laughs> that it is set in the future world of 2010. Watching our past. They use their computers. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously written in 1968, it was um, Brunner's attempt to really paint a picture of uh, what he felt See? the he world says of the as well. was going to be. I yes. say Brunner. There you go. I, I say care. Brunner. I say Brunner. Yeah. Is it you, Brunner? Yeah. So make, call the whole thing sense. off. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never call it off with you, Luke. Yeah, now, well, what's what's very interesting about this book, first of all, is that um, there's a lot in it that you really couldn't call science fiction these days. <laughs> it's actually... Quite a lot of it is... Dead on the money. Quite unerringly accurate. What, does it predict Justin... Justin Bieber? There is actually a character in here called Bieber. No. <laughs> no oh, you're actually happy for a second for a brief second. <laughs> you got me. Does it predict Zane leaving one, di- one Direction? I don't think he cares about that. <laughs> He's trying to deal with um, important stuff, not useless who cares facts like that. It does predict Spider-Man 3. It does. And it, it, actually, depicts, <laughs> it actually depicts your reaction to Spider-Man 3. Um, <laughs> no. Um, it's... Um, 
Yeah, it is set in a world where um, psychedelic drugs are actually mass-produced and completely legal. Yep. I think that was just wishful thinking on Brenda's part. Yeah, I think yeah. That, that that part of it really wasn't exactly accurate. But it deals with um, a lo- really a lot of the issues that I think were prevalent in 68, um, overpopulation, uh, war and peace. There's uh, a lot of social um, science and social philosophy in it. Um, it, it. It's really just trying to, like, seems to be compacting all of the fears and anxieties of people in 1968 into one novel. It centres around... Uh, two main characters. Uh, one is Donald, who begins the book as... He, he works for he works for the, the, the sort of Secret Service military industrial complex, but he's basically a researcher. His job is to research whatever interests him at the time and to occasionally make these reports about what he's reading about, but there's no real... Um, it's pattern recognition. Yeah, basically. That, that's pretty much the easiest way to put it. Um, yeah, he's an analyst. Is what he is, but not not an analyst in um, in the sense of analysing specific topics. Like he's given free reign as to what he actually more studies. in a William Gibson sense of yeah, yeah. Phrase. yeah. And you can see, I think that this book was actually quite a bit of an influence on Gibson's writing. Uh, our second character is Norman, who is the head of a company called GT, which has, amongst other things, developed the first intelligent supercomputer. Yes, Norman. Norman is. Um, Basically, his story centres around an African nation called Beninia, which uh, the leader of Beninia is trying to establish um, continuity for his country because he's in a situation where um, when he dies, um, there's no sort of clear line of uh, succession and his... The, the neighbouring nations may actually effectively take over and destroy his country. So um, his people approach uh, GT uh, and Norman specifically to actually set up effectively the, the, effectively the GT business taking over the country and building it into um, an economic force for the future. In amongst all of this, these two stories um don the donald and norman are actually uh actually apartment housemates um because of the overcrowding population in the in the world they they call apt which they call apt yes and so you kind of introduced to the two of them in in that way um until norman is leaves for beninia and donald gets called into active service by um, his military bosses. Much to his horror. Much to his horror. And our horror, there's, he goes through some absolutely just terrifying things. And basically mind control. Yeah, basically mind control and effectively almost Manchurian candidate level um, brainwashing uh, to transform him into basically a trained assassin. Well, it's kind of like the Matrix, except they don't plug you in. They, they download yeah. information into your brain. Yeah, yeah. Um and it, it sort of interspersed in, in between these two stories is fragmented shorter stories and snippets of um, information coming from reports, from books, from um, um, news broadcasts. I likened from... that a bit to like changing the channels. Yeah, yeah, effectively. It, I it, don't think it worked in book form. It, it's giving you, it's trying to give you a picture of, of what the world is like and how the world works. Um, but without without sort of doing it in a, a standard way, and Bruno tries to get a little bit um, creative with how he structures those sections of the book and with the narrative um, 
the storytelling and narrative aspects of that as well. I found that some of those work and some are actually kind of jarring and draw you out of the story. Um, I, I just found it um, like I'd get through a page of one and then realise none of it's actually penetrated the brain. I think it would work mm. much better in a visual format. Yeah. I think, yeah, I agree with that. And I think I think the short stories work a little bit better in that regard because it's like there'll, there'll be three or four pages. It'll focus on a character and what that character is going through and how that reflects, how, how their psychology is a reflection of the world and how the world is a reflection of their psychology. Oh, the short stories felt they, more like an information dump. Yeah, but but they're, they're at least focused on the character, whereas the, the other ones, which are just these snippets and it's like one one sentence and then you jump to something completely different and jump back again. And then it, yeah. those are the ones that I found a little bit more jarring um, because I could, yeah, because as you say, you kind of, you read through that, those sections and you kind of, when you get to the end, you realize that half of it just didn't register at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas at least, at least those short snippet stories have something you can sort of hook into a little bit more. Um, but really there's, it, it's, it's not so much a story anyway as it is an attempt to uh, paint a picture of the world. In that respect, I'd, I'd probably put it in the category more of things like Brave New World, uh, which is sort of more like a, a guide to how the world could be, or um, The Shape of Things to Come, being another sort of example of that. Um, in that, in that, yes, there, there are these two stories actually going on, but even those stories themselves are completely centred around the socio-political aspects of the world that Bruner is attempting to sort of paint. And like I said, it's, it's, it's really just all of the fears and anxieties of a person in 1968 expressed in book form. And Bruner is, um, well, Joe Haldeman actually describes Bruner as an angry man who is angry at injustice and cynicism. And this novel was meant to be a wake-up call to the world. And I think that's pretty much what Bruner was trying to achieve. And maybe, I don't know, maybe if I'd read it in sort of 68, 69, because I, I read it now and I'm like, wow, this is a picture of how the world has become. But without the, you know, without the, without the anger and like everyone yeah. just accepts it now. And, and it isn't exactly the way the world is like I, we've kind of a, a, a human humanity does adapt and evolve to these sort of things. And, um, and, and we have adapted a lot of what's in the book, but without quite necessarily the full level of cynicism and anger that, that Brunner is presenting here and, and anxiety that, that Brunner is trying to present. I kind of disagree. I kind of, it reads to me, more like a not not necessarily a book for, uh, for the future it was written uh, more like a parallel version of the 60s yeah whereas if in the 60s they might have had the um updated technology that's in the book because it's it's very much steeped in the counterculture sort of um philosophies and approach uh it, yeah. it's, it's very heavily counterculture and if you want it to be a wake-up call, I, oh, I don't know. I, when I first started reading it, I, I got quite frustrated because it's, it's kind of similar. When I start reading a William Gibson book, it's, it's I find it a little hard to penetrate to start with. It's like when you're playing jump rope, you've got two people winding the rope and you're sort of – you start moving with the motion of the rope, you're going forward, you get with the rhythm, and then you're in there and you're jumping and you're getting it. Um, and that's how I sort of am with the William Gibson book at the start. And it's usually pretty quickly putting it in there. This one was taking much, much longer. And yeah, I actually, the phrase, I, I wrote down a phrase that comes to my mind. A danger of inventing your own colloquialisms is that you run the risk of alienating your audience and making your own prose impenetrable, which 
I was so frustrated at the start of this book that I ended up reading the Wikipedia page just to try and get a handle of where it was going because I thought mm. I'm going to waste too much time trying to understand this because the book's too thick and I've only got limited time to read it. And then I had a bit of a look around on the internet for reviews and, and the, the reviews are divided. People either hate it yeah. or they love it. But common to most reviews, both sides of the reviews, is you really have to get to page 100 before you start really getting into the book. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Even because because even even Norman and, Norman and Donald, when they are introduced, they're introduced amongst all of these other stories that are being told. So yeah. you don't even realise at first that these characters, that you're going to come back to these characters. So, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. As, mm. as you're reading those first, say, 100, even 150 pages, you're not exactly sure where where the narrative flow is, is coming from until you do start to get a little bit more of Norman and Donald's story, especially together. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, right, these are the guys we're meant to be focusing on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I agree with your point as well. Like, it, it is definitely... Um, it is definitely of its time, um, no doubt about that. Um, Which is nothing wrong with it. I mean, no, you, not you couldn't at all. actually leap towards the future and, and and see what's actually going to happen. Yeah. And one of the criticisms of the book is they got the predictions wrong. And I don't. I think that's the wrong way to read a science fiction book. Absolutely, the, the intent of a science fiction book is not to predict the future. Yeah, it's to write a speculative fiction. Yeah, it's 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 meant to. Sh- show you the problems of now by extrapolating on where we could end up if those problems aren't dealt with now. And that's that's really what this book was trying to do, I think. Sometimes, Um, I mean, it's interesting to see what we got right and what we got wrong, but that's not the focus of the book. No, no. But I think, yeah, I think he did well with with the actual socio-political stuff. And and like I said, the anxiety of it all, like the the specific predictions might not be there, but certainly that, um, you know, society often, you know, rushing forward so quickly that we're completely out of control um, and, and the anxiety that comes with that. I think he actually mm. captured that quite well. But um, And I, I can definitely understand why in 1968 um, this book won it, its Hugo Awards and it, its, its British Awards as well because I, I can see how people in 1968 reading this would see that exactly for what it was, yep. which was this is what the world could be unless we start addressing some of these problems we've got now. But, yeah, but re- yeah, but reading it now, it is it is very much of its time, I think. Mm. There wasn't enough narrative for me to keep me interested through the whole book. I found certain passages quite absorbing and other passages uh, I found I'd read a page or two and not it's not really gone into my brain. I found the dialogue a bit stilted to, um, towards the end. I, I, it sounded to me... And I, it could be just me, but some of the dialogue sounded like the dialogue from the movie The Room. You know, <laughs> yeah. Your oh, hi, Mark. Lisa. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. And it's kind of it felt kind of contrived. And the way that Norman constantly um, used Prophet's beard as as a, a, a profanity. Uh, never heard, yeah, exactly. It just it, it didn't didn't read too well. And the character of Norman, I liked his character. Right at the start, yep. uh, how he came across as this high flutin executive, but he's he tr- he uses his niceness to gain an advantage. Mm. Um, but that then that character sort of swiftly really changed. I didn't like the term Afram. Um, Norman's African American, but they shortened the term to Afram. I, d- I just mm. didn't 
it was written in the 60s, yes, but if you're writing a book in the future and writing kind of how you think the future should be, maybe you don't even refer to his race. I don't know. But, mm. but yeah, no. I, I, and I it, didn't... He I, kind of you needed to do that, though, because he was dealing with race issues as yeah, well. Yeah, so yeah. So it, it, it did kind of that. need to be established yeah. that, that he was like that. Yeah, but I, but I, I see what you're saying. It, 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 terms like that can be can be jarring, yeah. and a and lot the, of the books of that era have that. So. The Shiggy's got me. Um yeah, the, the, the I don't know. I don't know. General. I don't know yeah. how that. But it seemed to be you could tell a shiggy on site. So whether yeah. they wear some sort of costume or it's printed on their forehead, I don't know. But a shiggy <laughs> is basically a woman who makes a doesn't work. She just goes from apartment to apartment, trading sexual favors for food and clothes for a, um, for a certain period of time. Yeah. So yeah. You, you'd hook up with one of these shiggies for say six months, and they'd live with you in the yeah. apartment, and and then you would trade them off to someone else, or they'd move on. And to that concept else would be fine if there were also the male shiggies as well. Yeah. I would. I would maybe let that slide. I do appreciate the attempt. The attempt to be really creative with the way it's written. It's just not your standard. Once upon a time and yeah. middle and end. But yeah. uh, on the whole, um, on my usual le- enjoyment level um, of rating, I give this book a, a one and a half looks. Okay. Look, I, I actually agree with a lot of what you're saying there. Um, but I, I actually, I, I probably enjoyed it a bit more than you did, though. Um, I, I, look, it's not a, it's not an enjoyable read. It's not a story you can really sink your teeth into. But I actually did find a lot of it fascinating. And a lot of it a little bit overblown and a lot of it didn't work for me. And I did find that um, as it went along, once I did get into um, Norman and Donald's stories, um, probably from the halfway point onwards, the the other stories that were still coming into the book right up to the very end did actually start to distract me away from the main story a bit because I'd already mm. got the picture of, of what the world was. And really the, the latter half of those kind of stories doesn't really tell me anything I didn't already know. But look, it was an interesting read um, and it is kind of an interesting view of, of, of that time period in which it was written. Um, so I'm going to give it uh, three Luke's. Cool. Next up, we've got myself and Luke, which kind of makes sense because yep. we're the only other two people in yep. the crew. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, we're reviewing Carter Beats the Devil by Glenn David Gold, uh, which was my pick. Uh, now, this book was introduced into my life through Luke himself, which I thought was after that Luke review it with me. Yep. Uh, it was bought for me as a as a birthday or Christmas present. I birthday, you Birthday, yeah. yep. Which is, uh, which is Luke's want. It's traditional that, yep. he, that he buys his books, so that's pretty cool. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this book. It's uh, it it's it's sort of a, a trilogy of sort of magician type books mm. um, that uh, that, I've, that I've read. Where and I mean when I say magician, I mean the illusionists. Yeah. Uh, so the Prestige and um, the Adventures of Cavalier and Cavalier and, and Clay. Cavalier and Clay. Yeah. So it's they form sort of like the trilogy of um, of magician books um, that uh, sort of mean something to me. Kind of the devil is. Is a fictionalized version of a real person. Yep. Um, so Carter, uh, Charles Joseph Carter, actually was a real illusionist of, uh, and uh, lived uh, between 1874 and 1936. Um, and this does use established uh, facts of his life, um, and is he credits what's uh, there's an actual biography of Charles Carter that he, he mm. uses quite a lot of information from. But then, you know, fictionalizes it in order to give it sort of the high adventure that it has, which is cool. Which, which is fascinating. So I actually quite, I quite like this sort of style of story, mm. um, where it sort of it plays hard and loose with the facts, but not in a, 
in a, in a, but in a nice way. Except no, yeah. that it's an entertainment. Yeah, it's, um, it's entertainment. It's, it's yeah. not meant to. It's not. You're not meant to be reading this. It, it's fiction. It, it's, not fiction. it's not a biography. Yeah, it's it's a dramatization. It's a fictionalized account of some of Carter's highfalutin events in life. I guess <laughs> highfalutin. I like that. Um, um, and and like the like the prestige, it has um, sort of a mystery. It's, it's, it tries to establish a mystery. So yeah. it's that it's, it's set in. Like an illusion, like an illusion itself. It doesn't quite go to the same sort of lengths that the Prestige does, mm. uh, but it's sort of it's set in acts, like he's showing the, the show itself. Uh, so acts one, two, and three. At the start, Carter is is already an established magician, and uh, President Harding, who once again is a real person, yep. um, joins him on stage to assist him with his act. And a short time after that, like it's either night, night after or a couple of nights mm. after that, Harding dies. Yep, and Carter gets blamed. Uh, and it's not until right at the very end that you then find out exactly what does occur, which I'm mm. obviously not going to spoil for you because it's because it's awesome. Um, it's fairly obvious about halfway through, but yeah. it's, but still awesome. Um, um, that's sort of the way that you that they used to get into the um, into what is actually more, more important, which is to get into Carter's life and yeah. you know, seeing how he discovers illusionism. Um, as a means of survival, not it's not just you know a nice thing he does. The first time he uses it, he's actually using it to trick someone because he's been he's, he and his um, little brother as kids have been imprisoned in their neighbor's dungeon or their neighbor's basement. No, no, they're in their basement. They're in their basement. Um, but the gardener, mm. um, who is this horrible, mean, drunk guy, mm. yeah, actually chains them up in the dungeon, which so, sounds a lot more horrible than it actually is yeah. in, in the book. But yeah, he's, but he's got to so use some escape like, artistry to actually. Uh, get out of the situation, and that's where the for, uh, that's where the foundations for the type of uh, illusionist he becomes. Yeah, um, starts. So he hates he hates the escapes type stuff yeah. because of that sort of very yeah. easy. Although his greatest hero is Houdini. Yeah, much like most magicians of the of the era. I mean, Houdini mm. being the man that he is. I do like the fact that Houdini is portrayed in the in a fictionalized way, but in that sort of that over the top not very nice person that he reportedly was yeah uh, which i thought was pretty cool so so yeah so even though at, at the very very start you've got the the established mystery of harding um it's it then goes back to his childhood and then mm. sort of travel and sort of goes from there as he sort of becomes the master illusionist that he does mm. there is which which i actually think is kind of the less interesting sort of interesting stuff i mean like i said it's three acts mm. actually acts one and three are my favorites mm. act two i think sort of loses its way a bit um I just, I, don't, I just don't find it as interesting as the other stuff. I don't think it's as interesting, but it's still quite enthralling. I think because that's the yeah. moment where he meets, you know, the pirates and yeah, well, it does have the pirate scene, which is which is very important. Um, but because uh, it's interesting, because I know I've got a little bit of time, but there's a lot about this book that um, you can talk about really without giving things away. Mm. Um, the relationship he has with uh, the chief villain of the piece, Mysterioso, and we're not really memory calls. We're not really told Mysterioso's um, real name. He's just called Mysterioso, and it starts off. Mysterioso is the head, of, is the lead magician in this vaudeville act. He's the star of the show. Yeah. Um, and Carter is, you know, the, um, the, you know, the the card and diamond, the coin, the lead, the lead-in guy to mm. make Mysterioso look better. But the, there's the more they go on, the more Mysterioso realizes that Carter is in fact the genuine deal. He's actually a really good stage magician, and Mysterioso is in fact the um, uh, the fraud, for want of a better term. Um, he he just he does he does know what he's doing, mm. but he just he just treats magic with con- and the audience with contempt. And, yeah. and he's basically a bastard. Yeah, in yeah. Um, but it, it leads to it leads to an escalation where Mysterious actually goes away in an attempt to learn 
real magic from uh, Brahmins and sages around the world, in places like India and China, like they was that like they were being told um, they they were doing in the um, the fake biographies that were on the the playbills. Yeah. Um, and gets disgusted that all he was being taught was you know wisdom and you know having to search in for yourself, search into yourself. Mystery um, essay is awesome. Which leads into you know the final um, escape and confrontation between the two. But there's so much going on in this book. You know you've also got an emerging technology that Carter discovers that he's trying to hide because he wants to use it in his act and he's trying to stop others from stealing it. Um, you've got the relationship he has with his brother who is gay, but. Um, you're not actually spe- you're not actually stated that at all. It's just inferred, and it's just accepted that that's what he is. And Carter completely, that, in spite of you know the time period that he's in, Carter completely loves his brother, even for that as well. And you've got the relationships he has with the various women in his life, um, which in one case lead, does lead to tragedy. It's one of those books where you could be in the hands of us writer, you could be bored by page ten. Yeah, and. For a five hundred page book, there was not a word. There was not a word where I went. No, that's wrong. That's completely wasted. I just went. This is almost a perfect book from go to woe. Not like it's not a word out of place. Not a moment where I was really bored or went. Nah, now I'm just wait. I'm just marking time here, waiting to get the next bit. There's always stuff happening. Carter is such an interesting character, but the supporting cast that he gets, um, uh, the agent trying to chase him, the chief villain who we've spoken about, the various love interests that he has, even the pirate, even the elephant. Mm. Who he's constantly got to feed, um, and the lion, and the lion, and baby. <laughs> uh, you know, quite, uh, quite interesting. I've, this is one of the few books that I've read twice. Um, wow, I love it that much. High praise and, indeed. And it's one of it's it, as soon as I read it, it immediately went into my top five favorite books of all time. Not just you know, this is a great read. The, uh, one of the books that I hide and hold in such high regard that others uh, lesser in comparison, like for instance, Cavalier and Clay, which I read before this. I actually thought that this did bet what Clever and Clay was trying to do, the sort of more comic book True. type story, far more, much more better because it accepted comic books, um, it accepted some of the ludicrousness of comic books as something to embrace rather than something to disparage against, which I think part of what Clever and Clay is doing. Yeah. Um, it's trying to do a real, more real world take. This, I mean, this is just fantasy. Fantasy in the sense of fiction. Yeah. Not, not in, this is not a, um, a fantasy novel in you know Tolkien. In terms yeah. Of well, Tolkien, there's no real magic. Is there's no magic <laughs> in it yeah. at all. Um, Fantastical situations. I love this book, and I can't I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. Um. And it, but it doesn't get caught in trickery, which is what the prestige gets caught up caught up in. This yeah. is not trying to pull the wool over the audience's eyes. This is in fact trying to say, and I'm treating you with respect here. This is the man's story. Yeah. It's um, just, I mean, it's where, I think where the prestige falls down is that it's. It's clever but pretentious. Yeah. Whereas this is clever and endearing. Yeah. And you know it, it, it enjoys being mm. ridiculous. There, there's a trick at the play, but it's not it's not trying to get the audience to second guess the trick. Yeah. Um, in the end, even when the trick is revealed, it's it's not it's almost an afterthought. Yeah. To exactly. A certain yeah. Degree. Like I said, I mean, it's, it's actually when the trick is is revealed, it's like, well, oh, okay, well, that's pretty obvious. Mm. And but. You don't feel cheapened by that. Mm. It's not like, oh, well, it could have been a little bit more extravagant. It's actually good that it's not extravagant. Yeah. It is actually obvious. Mm. It's stage magic. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not stage magic. Mm. That's right. I mean, when you think about it, most of it is obvious. So he yeah. actually explains, there's one sequence where he actually explains one of the tricks. Mm. And the person he's explained it to expects some sort of extravagant uh, uh, brax mm. or like, He expects some sort of extravagant sort of sort of setup type stuff. Mm. And then when he's told, told what actually happens, he's kind of like, he feels let down. He's like, yeah. oh. 
Well, is that all it is? Yeah. And that's basically all all of it is. It's the entire book is that. It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's more. He's like the show. The life is well, the life is the interesting, but it's the that's the real magic, and you know, the stage thing is just an act that he does and he enjoys doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. It's, it is it is uh, it is magnificent stuff, mm. and uh, it's I think it's my my favorite of the books that you've mm. uh, you've given me over the years. Yeah, and that's funny enough. That's a reaction that. I've gotten quite often, quite. A, I've recommended it a number of times. One was um, in one of the writing courses we had to read a book, and I recommended that, and that became the favourite of all the books that we had to read. Yeah. Um, because it was there was something in it. There's something in it for everyone. You know, it, there's yeah. you know intrigue, there's mystery, there's romance, there's adventure. Um, uh, ably supported by some remarkable characters, and he's only written two books. Um, yeah, this is his one, first book. It's his first novel. He's actually married to Alice Seabold, who's um, uh, quite a renowned writer for things like The Lovely Bones. But that's his first book, and he only wrote another one called Sunnyside, which I haven't finished, and which isn't as um, isn't as endearing, but with some of the same similar trappings. Cool. I, I don't think it's the perfect book. It's, I wouldn't put it in my top five <laughs> favourite books. I mean, like I said, the, I think the middle, the second act, that's mm. sort of awesome, important and in awesome moments, but yep. for the majority of it, it I'm just I'm kind of more eager to sort of get sort yeah. of for it to get moving but even but that being said even in those even those moments in this book are better written than similar sort of moments in mm. other sort of books yeah. so it's at no point where I was, was I skipping pages mm. um, yeah it's great stuff I highly, I highly recommend it I, and uh, I give it 4.5 looks yeah same here because I'd give it 5 but we all know my rule on 5 <laughs> books, films and comics awesome I, I respect that <laughs> that's fine so yeah, so that's Card of Beast Devil by Glenn David Gold. Um, and I just, I just, final thought, I just, I want to see that end show for realsies. Yep. That just would be brilliant. Yep, with the, um, all the screens around, and yeah. Carter is here. Yeah. Is, Carter, is Carter is here or Carter is Carter, alive? Carter is everywhere. Carter is everywhere. <laughs> I am everywhere. And it's such a nice build-up to that moment as well. Again, yeah. without, without spoiling things, but you, you it did, yeah, read the book. You'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Cool, so there's some awesome dust jackets for the next batch of dust jackets, as, as is our want. We will reveal the next dust jacket, so you've got time to read them. Yeah, it is actually, because it's our anniversary coming up uh, in a few weeks, um, once again we're back to Asimov, yeah. and this time we're doing books four and five of the Foundation series, because basically because I want to finish it off. <laughs> that's really what it is. That's the, that's the reason. I, I mean, we, I read the first three books, obviously, years ago, when we, when we did our first ever uh, Dust Jacket review, and um, yeah, I want to catch up on those books, so that's what we're doing. And they're called Foundation's Edge and Foundation and Earth, for those that's of right. you who are wondering what they're actually called. Yeah, well, they actually, do they actually have four and five on the no, top of the couple? No, no, no. Oh, okay, cool. So Foundation's no. Edge and... Foundation and, and Earth. Foundation, Foundation and Earth. Earth. Yep. Right, cool. Well, they're, they're the two books, so hopefully you've read the first three books, because we have. I've read if, all. If not, read all five. <laughs> <laughs> Just Wikipedia's the first three. And then they're read easy, four and five. They're, they're pretty easy to read. Easy reader says, this Asimov book is easy to read. <laughs> then go back and read all the Galactic Empire novels and all the robot novels and then see try and see how Asimov ties everything together. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> cool. All right, so uh, join us for that in episode 142. Coming up next, top five. Okay, so for this edition of top five, we're going to be talking about our favourite, to sort of tie into Cartabies the Devil, uh, our favourite fictional magicians slash sorcerers slash... 
Wizards. Wizards. Does it have to be, you know, high-end fantasy, you know, I summon thee from the pits of hell type magic, or could it just be... When you say magic... Well, that's why, I, that's why I added sorcerers and wizards so that it would be the fantasy actual was, magic users, okay. not illusions. Yes. Yeah, cool. But if you uh, want to attack an illusion, send there by all means, go for it. I don't care. <laughs> there are no rules. That's not true. There are rules. And there was something of a... <laughs> Luke, Luke and I had something of a debate over on the way here as to whether certain characters counted or didn't count. Oh, so. all right. Well, this is intriguing. All right. Well, in that case, was start with Luke. Cool. Um, okay, so my first one is uh, my a lot of my list is actually a couple of, a couple of actually uh, you know comic book characters as well. So the, and my number five is um, Nemesis the Warlock. Cool. Which is, um, Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill's Kevin O'Neill. Sorry, I can't remember the artist's name off the top no, of my head. That's so absolutely Pat, right. Oh, yeah, Kevin Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill is exactly Kevin, right. Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill's creation for um, 2008 back in the mid 80s. Um, and whilst he is a strange alien-looking dude who is fighting against an evil Terran Galactic Empire, what he is in fact is a demon who practice who is the imbo- living embodiment of chaos magic in the universe. Hmm. And he is in fact trying to to spread the word of chaos magic because order is in fact a disease that is uh, corrupting um, the universe and causing it to die. So he is in fact trying to instill rebellions on planets against um, against the Terran Empire, in particular the head of the Terran Empire, the almighty Torquemada, um, head of a uh, kind of an inquisition. Um, and their battle um, takes place over years and uh, countless planets, and many people die. Many, many, and many people die. The thing about that is that when they die... Nemesis doesn't really care. <laughs> um, well, why would he? He's a demon. He's a de- he's a demon um, attempting, uh, attempting to use his magic to get his way in the universe, and he is my number five character. Uh, my number four um, is a character. Numbers four and three are characters I've spoken about previously. Number four is John Constantine, and I thought it was. Im- oh, I forgot about John. Um, Poor John. One of the nice things is that oh. he, you know, is uh, one of the few successful practices of street magic. Mm-hmm. So he's not, you know, the highfalutin character that's say Gandalf or Merlin are, but you know, he's the guy that you want when you really, when you really need someone who's going to tell demons and angels just where to get off. Yep. Um, and he's got the know-how and the skills to back up what he claims. Uh, but I've talked about John Constantine before in our anti-heroes argument. Yeah. Um, my number three is also one I talked about. Recently. Argument. Uh, sorry, in our anti-heroes um, top five. <laughs> uh, my apologies. Um, uh, number three is one I've also talked about previously before, and that's um, the Monkey King. Cool. Uh, we talked about him in top five fantasy characters, um, but being uh, a top flight sorcerer himself, yep. being able to summon his own clouds, yeah, to fl- summoning his own clouds to fly on, uh, trying to go tete a tete with Buddha of all ca- Buddha of all um, of all gods, and basically proving that he is the one guy you just don't mess. Like John Constant, you just don't mess with him. Yeah. If he if he runs if he if he's there, really demons should just flee because he's a top notch. He's a great fighter. He's a great magician, and yeah, your days are practically numbered. Cool. Um, my number two? two is a character from a book called um, "Who Fears Death" by Nnedi Okafor, and I've talked about that, which, which was my selection for best book of last year. Yeah. Um, and that's Onye, the main character, and I'm choosing her because she is kind of in that T.H. White once in Future King Arthur mold with a lot of Harry Potter thrown in. But instead of the cutesy wizard boy or wizard girl um, affectation, um, she is in fact quite a uh, damaged 
character thanks to um, the history of her family, thanks to the history of her family, and the treatment and the suffering um, she experiences at the hands of the world around her when her magic does actually emerge. It's not considered a a good thing. It's actually considered quite a um, a dangerous thing, and she is um, exiled from various communities um, as she learns how to use her magic um, in an attempt to uh, destroy her father. And number one, there are really two wizards on this, really two wizards you should probably mention, either one or the other, and I'm going to go with Merlin. King Arthur's magician, advisor, a lot of a lot of magicians, including Gandalf, who I think is the other one who will go on a lot of people's lists, um, is the, is the, um, the forerunner for a lot of magicians in fantasy, um, and they don't really come any closer, I don't think. Cool. Richard? I'm also a bit uh, top-heavy as far as comic book characters go. Um, and there is one interesting one um, who I'm going to actually put as my number five, and that's the Scarlet Witch. The reason it's possibly slightly controversial is that, first and foremost, she's a mutant with what started as bad luck powers, then became probability manipulation, then became reality manipulation. But she is, as I've mentioned many times in the past, my absolute favourite Marvel character and possibly my favourite comic book character. And she did actually start practicing magic um, in the 70s. And at one point, uh, it was revealed that she channeled chaos magic. Um, So I'm including her on the list because of that. Um, I've talked about her plenty of times in the past. But um, yeah, absolutely love the character and always have. But the only reason she's at number five is because she's not necessarily what you would call a a magician or a sorcerer. That's the one you argued about? No. Uh. no, 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 no. The one we actually argued about was, was Morpheus, Morpheus. Oh, okay. whether he counts as a magician or not. To which I said no. It's so, as in the Sandman. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. not the blue pill or red pill. No, no, not no, no. He wouldn't count either. <laughs> My number four is Doctor Fate from DC Comics, um, who is a character, and in fact, you'll hear this a lot. A character I encountered as a as a young comic book reader in an old JLA JSA crossover. And I thought he was kind of cool. And then later on in All-Star Squadron, I found out pretty much all the details about him and how he's a, a guy. He discovers a magic helmet. He puts the magic helmet on. It turns him into a magician. But the magic helmet is actually possessed by this sort of godlike being who is a lord of chaos who slowly but surely actually starts to take over his mind and take control of his body. And um, and that sort of drives him to the brink of insanity many times. And... Um, I, I, I like it because he... I, I love the character because he shows sort of the... I guess the pitfalls of, of magic and the, the price that getting that kind of power can actually uh, cause. And we'll, we'll actually get to that very topic with... Uh, and he looks cool. With my number one. Um, and he looks awesome. Yeah. My number three? three character actually ties into one of Luke's characters and that's a character called Deadlock from the ABC Warriors who is actually intrinsically connected with Nemesis the Warlock. <laughs> uh, first of all, they are kind of possibly the same character, yep. sort of, but they also actually are uh, nemeses at one point. They actually do have a... They do fight one another, but um, Deadlock is a robot who is actually also a practitioner um, and worshipper of uh, chaos magic and a chaos god. What he actually does to his team, the ABC Warriors, in that regard, is absolutely one of the most brilliant comic stories I've ever read, where he takes the staunch militaristic characters and the the um, character programmed to double-cross and triple-cross and even quadruple-cross uh, his team and um, and actually makes them into worshippers of Chaos Magic as well. But um, I've always loved the ABC Warriors, and Deadlock is my absolute favourite character from that. 
My number two character is Merlin. Merlin sets the standard for um, pretty much what all uh, classic magicians and sorcerers are. Um, and it's also kind of a tragic tale as well. Um, ah, he got what he deserved. Yeah, he was a he bit of a scumbag. With, he thought with his penis. He, he was a bit of... And, and, let's face facts, and let's face facts, he was a bit of a scumbag. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I dreamed this up. <laughs> uh, but my number one uh, magician is actually Dr. Faustus, as, in, cool. as presented in um, the classic uh, Christopher Marlowe play. Um, you know, the story of a man who is basically just good at everything he does. He's a master at medicine, he's a master of philosophy and theology and everything, and then decides to devote himself to magic. And in doing so, makes a pact with Mephistopheles, basically the devil, um, to gain supreme power. He could have called on Carter. He could have called on Carter. Carver beats the devil. Carver beats the devil, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, that, that, that deal that he makes basically destroys him. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think this... this story is absolutely brilliant um and one of the truly great you know classics of of literature and um i'm always just fascinated by the story of faustus so that's my number one cool okay once again i have failed in coming up with five (laughs) (laughs) not through lack of trying but um you know i couldn't quite make it to five i got three at number three a favorite from my childhood is Orko from He-Man. <laughs> <laughs> now, Orko on his, home, awesome. on his home planet is a, is a master at his craft, but on the... Uh, where, where are they? Eternia? Eternia. On Eternia, his magic doesn't quite work very well and often backfires with hilarious consequences. Hijinks ensue. Hijinks ensues, yes. Um, <laughs> I haven't rewatched a cartoon as an adult, so I don't know. Um, Whatever you do, do not watch the cartoon as an adult. (laughs) But, uh, you know, as a child, the cartoon hit the spot. Number two on my list, probably no surprise to anyone, is Gandalf. Um, Gandalf is a kindly wizard and and takes care of his charges, but never loses sight of the bigger agenda. And number one on my list is Rincewind from the Discworld. Now, Rincewind is your classic reluctant hero. He gets himself into situations where he doesn't want to be in, but ends up triumphing. Rincewind is not a great wizard. He really only knows one spell, and he's not allowed to use it. Now, he knows this spell because he peeked at this book in the Unseen University. It was chained up. He's not meant to look at it. And the spell embedded himself into Rincewind's head. So... Rincewind can't learn any other magic because that's just so strong and powerful, this spell. And the spell threatens to escape. Does he ever use it? That, that it would be a spoiler. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, this, this, um, this causes Rincewind uh, no end of grief. He, he, I say, he can't learn any other magic, so he fails miserably at the Unseen University. And then um, on his travels, he... Uh, <laughs> becomes somewhat of a coward because he can't rely on his magic and he's not the most physically strong man in the world it's just it's just he's just a great character wizard with two z's okay okay cool i'll give that in one uh so for mine uh i've changed my number five based on because of what luke was saying because i I forgot poor john constantine who is also i'm ashamed of myself so he's going to be my number five my original number five uh was tim the enchanter they call me 
Tim. <laughs> but John Constantine, he's a better character, let's be honest. And for all the reasons that Luke has already said. I would have, uh, I would have stuck with Tim, actually, over, <laughs> over Constantine. <laughs> uh, number four, I had Severus Snape, uh, who is the most interesting character in all the Harry Potter books, uh, second and only by Hermione. Um, and played by Alan Rickman, so that ups his awesomeness. Well, I count the book, the books, and the film versions. But yeah, probably by Alan Rickman, so that's always good. Um, he is—he actually, to me, is the main character, and you know, his story is far more interesting than Harry's. And uh, yeah, but the book's written for a, a child audience, so you've got to have a child as a main. Character. Yeah, but I'm not a child; I'm, I'm an adult, and he's, he's, his his storyline is far more interesting. J.K. didn't write the book for you. J.K. did write the book. <laughs> she sent me an email. So it was for you. Uh, at number three, I've got Doctor Doom. Uh, is because he's my favourite comic character. Uh, well, well, my second favourite comic character ever after after Spidey, of course. Oh, um, you a Spider Man fan? Yeah, I'm. A, yeah, wow. I like Spider Man. Really, quite a lot. I don't know if you noticed that. that. No, yeah. it's a revelation. Um, and uh, and yeah, he is he is the the replacement Sorcerer Supreme. I mean, it's, so uh, if he wasn't a bad guy, he basically would have replaced Stephen Strange instead of. Doctor Voodoo or whatever his goddamn name Brother was. Voodoo. Brother, Brother Voodoo. Brother Voodoo. What that was that about? I'm sure he doesn't approve. Though. <laughs> I, I, he doesn't, Doom doesn't approve. I love that graphic novel, the one that Roger Stern and Mike Mignola did with Doom and uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah, they go to hell. Yeah, yeah. God, that story is awesome. I'm also a big fan of, this, of the Fantastic Four storyline where he he tricks them into trying to save his lady love or something, but. Oh, uh, yeah. He makes a pseudo um, armor out unthinkable. of Unthinkable. Yeah, unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's awesome stuff. Uh, anyway, but Doctor Doom, he's brilliant for all those reasons and the fact that he's an awesome sorcerer uh, number two I've got Raceland Magia uh, right from the Dragonlance novels no you're a Dragonlance fan too <laughs> sorry shut the hell up <laughs> uh, Raceland is uh, he, he topped the he topped the list of my top five fantasy characters so he's uh, at the very least second here um, he's just he's a great character is, uh, for all the reasons I've already discussed in the past but uh, not only just because of how awesome he looks but just some of the stuff he does is just blows you away. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant character. Uh, and number one, I've got a, a it's a they're, they're a combo because they they go hand in hand, and it's uh, Balgarath the Sorcerer and Polgara the Sorceress uh, from the David Eddings novels, the Balgariad and the Malorian. Shock horror. <laughs> um, they are they are brilliant. I, was, I I couldn't I couldn't have just Balgarath or Polgara because or uh, Polgara because they're both brilliant in their own way, um, and they sort of they complement each other. And uh, it's, they're the main reasons to read the books. So they're, they're, they're brilliant stuff. Cool, so that's our top five fictional magicians slash sorcerers. We'd love to hear yours. If you've got any uh, any suggestions, anybody we missed, any, uh, we should be ashamed that we missed this particular one. I'm ashamed that I didn't include Tim. <laughs> Tim. <laughs> he is awesome. Let's finish up with our coming soon. In cinemas, April 16th, we get Mall Cop 2, Paul Blatt. I will be avoiding this one. <laughs> I can't say I've ever seen Mall Cop 1. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might actually be Paul Blatt, Mall Cop 2. I don't know, I might have stuffed that up. But anyway, Mall Cop 2, who cares? I mean, seriously. Mm. Have you seen the first one? The first one was a bomb. I don't even understand why it's got another one. It's bizarre. Because everything gets a sequel these days. <laughs> it's weird. Taken. T- the, the other one we get is The Ages of Adeline, which uh, which is uh, kind of interesting, I suppose. It's a... It's a it's a romantic drama uh, where a woman with immortality and, uh, you know, she watches all her loved ones die on her and then she, she falls in love with some other this person now and she decides whether she wants to stop being immortal or not or something. Sounds very uplifting. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sounds incredibly original, like a story I've never, ever heard told before. I know. Anyway, whatever. It looks pretty. Um, and The Gunman, uh, which I think has been... Uh, we've mentioned it before, so it's been pushed back. So it's Sean Penn entering the, entering the, uh, the Action Man stakes. And While We're Young, which I don't know anything about. Oh, is that that Ben Stiller? Oh, yeah, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller one. Yeah, yeah that's that actually Yeah, that actually looked all right. I, I was interested to see that, actually. Yeah, that's the but, one. But, uh, um, yeah... Proof's in the pudding. <laughs> it is indeed in the pudding. I eat it there. <laughs> so I nearly call him Ben Zoolander. <laughs> ben Zoolander. <laughs> that video at Fashion Week was on the air. That was very, very funny. I've never actually seen Zoolander, but that was hilarious. So that's episode 138. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget the Foundations, book four and five. Read them before we get to the next, uh, next Dust Jacket episode, which is 142. So uh, that's it from me and the crew. Richard. You know, Waldo, that I'm not actually a wizard. Luke. Yeah, I feel like we've actually done that one before. So, you know, time to move on, Richard. And Crystal. That, that sounded to me like the Shatner version. <laughs> but I can play a wizard. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You can run on our wall if you go to the Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Tweet us at nerdculturecast. Skype us on nerdculturepodcast. If we don't answer, leave a message. We might even play it on the show. You can comment on any post on our website. www.nerdculturepodcast.com If you'd like to support the show... Use the Amazon affiliate widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, and a small percentage of the profit goes towards helping us to produce our show. We can see what you buy, but not who you are, so your privacy is assured. Check out our videos at ncptv.net, or search for NCPTV on YouTube, because we also have a YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Wondering where you can hear more of Bo? Go to ecnradio.com. Bo and David also have another podcast called Film Flams. More info at www.filmflams.com. You can find all of our podcasts and more at undercastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. <laughs>